Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Mike Bird and Scott Harrower. Mike Bird is the academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley Theological College in Melbourne, Australia. Mike has written and edited numerous books. Most recently, he collaborated with N.T. Wright on the New Testament and its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. His colleague at Ridley is Scott Harrower, lecturer in theology and church history. Scott has written God of All Comfort, a Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World, published by Lexham in 2019. But today, we're not talking about any of those books. We're going to be talking about their project together, Trinity Without Hierarchy, Reclaiming Nicene Orthodoxy in Evangelical Theology. It's a collection of essays published by uh, Craigle Academic in 2019. I'm delighted to have both Mike and Scott with me today on the podcast. In addition to being co-host today, I also get to participate a bit as a contributor since yours truly wrote an essay on Gregory of Nyssa for this volume. So both Mike and Scott are OnScript veterans, so you can check out their respective interviews on our website. So I'm looking forward to a ruckus good time here because after being cooped up for so long, discussing a bit of a theological row on the Trinity will be a delightful diversion. So welcome, Mike and Scott. G'day, Amy. Good to be here. Hello, Amy. So I want to put an introductory question to both of you, because I think it will situate this volume in a broader context. We often talk about discussions or conversations in theology when we want to sound like we're being, you know, generous. Um, But sometimes things escalate to a place where conflict becomes inevitable. It's very common for Christians watching these theological or biblical debates from the sidelines to view these as counterproductive and to voice a sense of discomfort or avoidance. Indeed, more often than not, it has been my experience that Christians often view theology sort of fundamentally as agonistic, competitive, argumentative, and exclusionary because it seems one has to know a lot of terms and writers to even know what's going on. So here's my question. Do you think that there is a place, so this is a big sort of general question, do you think that there is a place for healthy theological conflict? And where have we erred with regard to this? And what have we done well? So, Scott, let's start with you. Uh, when Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, the first virtue is to be humble, um, to be people who are poor in spirit and recognize that we need him, the spirit of truth, and one another. So for me, there's a very important place for healthy theological discussions because we do need one another fundamentally. So to be a person is to be a person in relation and conversation, and therefore we need to grow one another in relationships and conversations. We don't get it right, and we need God's help, and we need one another to discern God's help. And this is what we see in the formation of the canon. We see the seven ecumenical creeds as movements of people together discerning what's true, what's wise under God, what's healthy. For the church. So I think there's a really important place for theological discussions and 
when theology is unhealthy, it needs to be called out and a healthier response articulated very clearly. Mike, what would you say? Uh, I would say, yeah, we definitely need theological debate and discussion. It's very healthy. It is through debate, through contention, that the church got to know its own mind on things like the the person of Jesus, the nature of God, which is the Trinity. These things were born uh, in the womb of theological uh, debate and dispute. And and that's how we got the, the tradition, the trajectory of theology that we have. Uh, the danger, I think, is when, as Scott said, there is a lack of humility. It's also when you begin erecting boundaries about, around things that were never meant to have boundaries. If I had to make one critique of evangelical culture, I think this is not just America, this is, it can be anywhere, it's where you say the boundary of good theology is not around historic orthodoxy, it's around a, a particular type of conservatism. You know, so when you think that the the boundaries of the good guys and the bad guys, uh, that that becomes more tribal than historical when it's related more to the individual situation rather than the wisdom of the collective tradition. That is what I see is is one of the biggest problems. It's where you put the boundaries and as a result, certain boundaries are just there to reinforce the hegemony of certain um, leaders and, and the tribes that they represent. So, so, but debate is normally healthy. It's, it's when it becomes a type of gatekeeping for a, for a type of um, uh, coercive ecclesial culture is when I think it can be detrimental. Yeah, and I think that there's, in general, um, kind of an allergy to conflict just in relationships, right? Like when, when we talk about around, you know, Thanksgiving here in the United States, like, oh, no, especially because it's an election year. <laughs> like, what's going to happen when you, <laughs> well, none of us are sitting around Thanksgiving tables with big, large gatherings. <laughs> but, you know, in past years when we have, you know, there's a sense of like, avoid conflict at all costs, right? And there's a sense that the only way to preserve relationship is to do that kind of thing, right? Um, but there's a sense that if, if we don't have some conflict, then we end up with not really having an understanding about what it is that we believe. And and I think what's fundamental for me is that this matters. Like, it's not just these, these aren't tiny little debates about minutiae that doesn't matter, right? Like it, what's at stake is how we read scripture, who Christ is, how salvation works. All these things are so important. And so if we don't get a little hot under the collar about some things, <laughs> um, there's a sense of, you know, well, does it really matter to us, right? So before we get into some specifics uh, of the recent debate addressed in Trinity Without Hierarchy, let's talk about fundamental Nicene theology just for a bit so that this book is seeking to reclaim. So between the three of us, I think we can get a full, yet brief, recounting of the events and theological outcomes of the Council of Nicaea, uh, you know, running into the Council of Constantinople and its aftermath. So along the way, um, there are a couple of terms I'm sure will come up throughout this podcast, like the term person, Arian, subordinationism. So if we can kind of define a couple of things and just give a nice framework sort of on the positive side before we talk about how things have kind of <laughs> potentially gone off the rails, let's uh, begin with articulating um, that framework force first. So who would like to jump in first and begin? 
Oh, I'll, I'll give a I'll give a crack at Go it. Go for it. Although I have to say, my my primary speciality is New Testament, and I just kind of like dabble in patristics and Nicene theology. You so did pretty well caveat, dabbling, so. We'll yeah, well, I, I try to do dabbling, <laughs> bluffing my way through. Uh, but I would say the the center of gravity in a pro-Nicene theology is that which is true of the divinity of the Father is also true of the divinity of the Son and the Spirit. Uh, he is uh, the Son is not a lesser form of divine being, and in particular, he's not a creature that is ninety nine point nine percent divine. He participates in the full divinity of God the Father. So I would say that is the center of gravity. I mean, the, 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 and even with the Creed of Nicaea, there were still certain things left unspecified, like what is the nature of personhood, um, how does the, you know, uh, the appropriateness of terms like homoousios, um, given that it's not found in Scripture and it could potentially lend itself to a modalistic interpretation. Uh, but I would, but I think that's that that was the main concern that the, the Creed of Nicaea settled at that point, although it still generated subsequent debates that followed. Right. So there's a, that, that 99.9% creature bit, right, is the priest Arius who, you know, his concern, he, he didn't wake up in the morning and go, Ooh, it's a good day to be a heretic, right? Like his, his desire, well, I don't know, maybe he did, but probably not. Uh, his desire really was, he didn't want it, it, it was really important for Jesus to be like us, right? Like, so we would say sort of in later ter Christological terminology, uh, you know, the fully human, fully divine thing. So he was really like, we don't want to lose that human connection because our salvation is at stake. Um, so in doing that, he sort of collapsed that distinction between creator and creation, right? And, and then with that, then all of a sudden we end up having a subordinated Christ, and then later a subordinated Holy Spirit, right? Scott, do you want to fill out anything in there? Oh, I think it's important to acknowledge that these questions do emerge from the New Testament, and Arius is accenting what we see in the book of Hebrews, which is that Jesus is a brother to us. He's very much like us. He struggled. Um, he learned obedience. So there are strong scriptural strands that he's trying to hold on to. But what's going on is that he can't also include the theology that we find to do with Jesus' divinity in uh, Philippians, in 1 Corinthians, in John, in 1 John, for example. And Nicaea is really trying to uh, bring those scriptures together and hold them together against rival interpretations. So what's the healthiest interpretation of scripture where we can include the most data and do so that in a way that has the healthiest consequences for the worship of the Son alongside the Father and the Spirit. So it's very much um, an issue that begins in the New Testament and is to do with interpretation. Mm -hmm. Well, in that term, Mike, that you brought up of homoousios, like because uh, you mentioned that that's not in scripture. And so there was a sense of this discussion and an important discussion, right? We just talked about necessary debate of, is this the right term that we use as kind of a helpful framework and key for us to uh, hold to the biblical witness well? Well, I think, I think it was because you had to do, the word homoousios is trying to do two things. Number one, it's trying to sum up what scripture says. 
Uh, and as uh, a chap called David Iago uh, pointed out, if you look at something like Philippians 2, where Jesus is equal to God the Father, which is a biblical judgment, and if you then express that in a theological language, something like homoousios is very appropriate. Okay, so saying Jesus is equal to God the Father, uh, not just in function but and in form, but also in, in their very being and nature, homoousios language summarizes what scripture itself is affirming. The other reason why homoousios was useful is it was a term that no Arian could affirm, okay? Because the danger is if you use biblical language, um, the Arians or the pro-Arians could just say, okay, that's fine, we'll accept it. Of course, what we mean by that is something different to what you mean, but we'll use that language when we'll just have a wry smile on our face. So the word homoousios summarized what Scripture taught about the unity of the Father and the Son, but it was also a word that no Arian could, they, they couldn't wiggle around it, okay? They, they couldn't like, well, I'll take it metaphorically or I'll take it in a kind of, you know, mystical sense. That they, they, There was no wiggle room. You, you were either on it, and that's why it was a good um, a word, uh, although it did have a little bit of baggage because it, some thought it could have like um, connotations of modalism, um, which I think it did have with, um, oh, what's his name, uh, uh, and was it um, uh, Marcellus of Ancyra, and um, who was a little bit of a lead weight around Athanasius's neck for a while until um, until Athanasius finally kind of cut him loose, sort of a thing. Uh, yeah, but so so I think it was a good word, and that's why we can accept it as a, as a theological summation of scriptural language. It did open up a giant theological can of worms, right? Like. And oh, it did. when it when did. they showed up at the Council of Nicaea, which everybody was probably a bit on edge because, you know, a Roman emperor wants you to come to something, you know, in, in the past that might not be a great thing to attend. Uh, you know, you all show up and it's not like everybody walked in and said, oh, welcome to the first ecumenical council. You know, my name's Bob. Nice to meet you. Um, you know, it's so it was sort of a lot of times, I think, when we think about these councils, they feel like these finished product projects that people showed up, stamped things and moved on. But Nicaea, is actually this, like, it created a, a lot of drama after the fact, um, then around that term. And then, of course, it, Mike, you mentioned, like, how uh, the pro-Aryans and then the Eunomius and those who would follow in those footsteps, Aetius and such, um, couldn't use that word. But they, so they came around other conversations, right? Methodology, you know, scriptural interpretation, and then the conversation around the Holy Spirit, like some people saying, oh yeah, well, the Father and Son are homoousius, but not the Spirit. The Spirit's subordinated. <laughs> so we have this big drama that kind of unfolds after that. And this is precisely why, Amy, in uh, the second edition of my Evangelical Theology, which is out this week. Oh, hey, nice I plug. Describe the, <laughs> I described the Council of Nicaea through a rap battle. <laughs> So uh, kind of like you know, the musical Hamilton, uh -huh. I do my own rap battle about the Council of Nicaea. So yeah, it, and, and I think that sums up the contentious nature of it, because unless you can rap it, it's not really contentious. <laughs> awesome. So let's get into, let's get into this book specifically. Um, so I asked that first question about conflict because Trinity without hierarchy, this context is both part of this long running Trinitarian debate that we just articulated, but it's also a particular recent version of this discussion that kind of started in a little corner and then kind of blooped everywhere. 
bloop is a technical theological term, um, into sort of a large conflict. So Mike, I know you've done a lot of explaining um, of this conflict with like some videos and that kind of thing. So now that we've laid that Nicene groundwork, I'm going to start with you. Would you give us this uh, this backstory, backstory of this book, the context of this theological conflict? And then Scott, feel free to jump in, fill in wherever you'd like. Well, the backstory is since the late 1970s, a number of uh, evangelical theologians have been arguing that the the hierarchy within marriage between husband and wife is mirrored in a hierarchy within the Trinity. So man and woman are in the image of God, and that image uh, replicates the subordination within the father-son relationship. So as Christ submits to the father, so the wife submits to the husband. Oh boy, I wish you could all see Amy's <laughs> face at this point. It is, it is positively priceless. Um, I'm surprised your, your, your eyes aren't injured from rolling so hard in the back of your head. But anyway, that was largely the argument, okay? And they then read uh, scripture with a, with a, with a, maintaining the ontological equality between father and son, but then majoring on what's called a functional subordination. Now, this is right to the extent that you do have passages like 1 Corinthians 11, you know, which is a very tricky text that does talk about you know, headship of man, Christ and woman, that type of thing. There is a function, there is at least a, a, a subordination of sorts in certain passages, like in John 14, 28, the father is greater than I, and Jesus is the agent of the father in both creation and in consummation. I mean, you can see that everything from John 1 to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And, and that, that's where they're partly partly right. And this, this, was, this was the real uh, problematic aspect. The, uh, what, the eternal function subordinations were saying some things that were right, but it was, it was often what they denied and failing to address the wisdom of the, of the wider tradition, recognizing that we'd already been through many of the debates. The way the father and the son are differentiated is not through subordination or hierarchy, but rather through relations of origin. And, that's, and they started saying things like, I can't find eternal generation in my Bible, that type of a thing. And the whole idea of basing your um, Trinitarian argument or b- deploying it for a particular view of man and woman and marriage meant the cart was really driving the horse. This was being driven not so much by an understanding of intra-Trinitarian relations from scripture or from tradition, but it was really trying to uh, reinforce and establish a particular view of male-female relationships within the church that would be normative for Christianity. Uh, now, at, at one level, I've, I've always sort of understood that some of the main adherents to this, like Bruce Ware and Wayne Groom, they, they were not classical Aryans. They were not classical Aryans. I think that was fair. Uh, but I, as I pointed out, uh, the language of subordination is, is very, very... Uh, it's, it's wrong language at a theological level. I mean, certain parts of the New Testament scholars would use that, but it's not the, the best theological language. And, and But my biggest argument was... Um, you know, trying to base your marriage on Trinitarian relations doesn't really work because unless your marriage includes two guys and a eunuch, I'm really not sure this is going to work. Now, I don't know, maybe up in your way, up in Boston, in Massachusetts, where I think that I think the state's motto is if you can carry it, you can marry it. But, you know, I don't I've never I've never understood the idea of trying to base your your marriage hierarchy on a Trinit- inter-Trinitarian hierarchies. 
that that has never occurred to me. I don't think it occurred to anyone till about like the late 70s. Well, and that's what's so interesting about this debate. There's two pieces there that you kind of hit on um, where you have this real intense desire for a particular interpretation of how we live together and operate. Um, and, and, and this is a particular, we should say, uh, this is a particular corner of evangelicalism. It's not all evangelicals that thought this. Um, and it certainly, it, it was a very intense and, and very influential corner. <laughs> so a lot of us for a long time were just sort of watching from the sidelines going, what in the world are they doing over there? <laughs> Until it became kind of a lar- lot larger of a debate because some people within that particular corner started going, hmm, I think maybe there are some basic Trinitarian problems with this, right? And and then the second piece with that, which you mentioned about uh, human relationships and um, inter-Trinitarian relations, so that there's this kind of side conversation with the whole discussion around social Trinitarianism that makes this even more complicated and brings it into the larger conversation um, across um, denominational lines, um, which makes this more than just a theological conflict that's happening in a particular corner. Scott? We should also mention that it wasn't just evangelicals who were trying to say that the relations between the persons of the Trinity in, the, in salvation history are mirrored in eternity and therefore have consequence for human relations. We had a well-known case here in Australia where the first amongst the archbishops claimed that he should be the first amongst equals because the father is the first amongst equals in the Trinity. So there were a range of people making unwarranted claims that were anti-realists, so simply not true about the Trinity, and then trying to project those onto human relations. It was part of um, a a pragmatic turn um, in theology and a a deep desire to try to connect the theological with the practical and the everyday, which is a great desire. However, um, it was um, too facile and too quick. The way the New Testament works is basically the connection between what the Trinity means for us in the everyday is through Christology. And that's a point that Graham Cole makes in his essay. When Paul appeals to, um, to theological norms for ethics, he appeals to the incarnation, not Trinitarian relations. And that's what happens in Philippians 2. That's what happens in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Um, he who is rich became poor for your sake so that you might become rich. Therefore, be generous. You know, So the key is the incarnation, not in a Trinitarian relations. And I think that's one of the um, great contributions of Graham Cole's essay in Trinity Without Hierarchy, is he works through the hermeneutics of the New Testament, and he says, if you want to get your ethics, don't go to the Trinity and Trinitarian relations, but go to where the accent is placed in the New Testament, and that is on the incarnation. And and this is a good example of how really fundamental theological ideas, really in like huge New Testament concepts, um, kind of all swim in this one, this big particular ocean and have really, really important 
theological ramifications, like not just theological ramifications, but practical ramifications. Like this one is pretty obvious with, um, you mentioned with a hierarchy within sort of an ecclesial setting, but then relations between um, men and women, right? Like the outcropping of this theology is women can't do certain things. Like I mean, there's a really sort of basic ramification to this and it's directly connected um, to the Trinity. So why respond with a book? So what was the vision behind Trinity without hierarchy? Because we couldn't find a producer <laughs> for the movie. Um <laughs> No, this is something, um, you know, Scott and I had some good conversations about this. I guess for one of the big things that really inspired me was uh, was another Amy, um, not our wonderful host here, but Amy Bird in the United States. I mean, she, she probably did a lot more to bring this whole thing down than a lot of theologians had done because she kind of pushed back on some of this within her own um, complementarian reform circles and she was getting really shut down so she enlisted a couple of thoughtful pastor theologians um, who who were theologically well versed but were never into this quite uh, distinctive American phenomenon of evangelical subordination and then all hell broke loose you had some of the top patristic scholars in the world weighing in on this guys like uh, Michelle Barnes, Lewis Ayres and between Amy Bird, her posse, and these, you know, uh, other patristic theologians and a few other voices, um, Kevin Giles had been around nipping at this heel for decades. I just think the whole thing just finally came crumbling down and there was nothing left but debris and, uh, and, and a whole bunch of people saying um, revoco kind of like I retract. And in the aftermath, thankfully, uh, Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem, um, God bless their socks, came round to the idea of eternal generation, um, which is, you know, good for them. Um, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, uh, a friend of mine, Denny Burke, I mean, he came out and said, look, the, the whole EFS thing was never part of the essence of the complementarian movement. It was just something that was kind of around the, an orbit around the sides. Uh, now, whether that's a his, historical representation of what of what happened is another thing, but certainly from a confessional point of view, there were some instant moves to kind of do some what you might call product of differentiation, saying, I'm not with that guy. Um, uh, and even even President Al Mola of Southern Seminary came out and saying that he was never he was, you know, never really a hundred percent with this sort of thing. Um, it was just, you know, Part, part of the general movement itself. So that that was the big ramifications that came out of it. And so our book kind of enters in that, if you like, maybe maybe to to deliver the final, um, how can I put this, the final Demnatio Memoriae uh, for the whole EFS movement. So we can, the, the, the book, sh the last line of the book should have been, and let us never speak of EFS ever again. Uh, that, pro that would have been a great epilogue, okay? Uh, let us remember the lesson. Uh, let us never speak of this again. And there was also a concern um, that our students didn't have a helpful resource for navigating these conflicts. So Mike and I are both teaching um, Trinitarian theology and Christology classes at Ridley. Our students are seeing this debate. We have egalitarians, complementarians, every kind of shade in between. Um, and they wanted a good resource. 
And so we could point them to, to blog posts, to podcasts, different kinds of interviews. Um, but then after morning tea one day, actually, we decided to sit down, let's get together a bunch of experts and put together a volume that's going to be really helpful in the classroom. Um, so this last semester, for example, in my um, Trinity Theology class, we had students uh, reading and reviewing chapters um, to to help them understand the contours, uh, the shape of the discussion and our rich heritage um, from our New Testament essays all the way through to contemporary theology. So it was really um, something that came out of our friendship, our friendship with the authors, and also the fact that we're both teachers in the classroom and we wanted a good resource. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm grateful too, because I teach also teach a Trinity and Christology course. And um, so like trying to navigate some of this because the students come from various traditions and some of them are looking at it much from the outside and others are, and not quite understanding some of the terms. So let's spend a bit of time, um, with these essays. So three is already a crowd with a podcast. So I do want to give, um, some space for y'all to talk about maybe, uh, let's stick with one and two, if you can be short with it, uh, specific essays that you think contribute to the volume. So I prepped you all ahead of time. So you had a little bit of a moment to think about this. I know we already heard about Graham Cole's essay. So um, it, maybe let's jump in with another one that comes to mind. Scott, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Uh, so um, we're, we're uh, both very keen on chapter one, Sonship, Sending and Subordination in the Gospel of John by Adesola Akala, and she's an uh, English uh, New Testament scholar. Um, the first section of the book deals with what would be defeater passages for Nicene Orthodoxy. So passages that seem to push for some kind of semi Arianism. And so we have three essays, four essays pushing back against that. And so what Adesola shows is that whenever Jesus speaks about being sent, being the son, um, or referring to the father as greater, that's always bracketed with statements and a logical flow within John's gospel that accents his full divinity and his relationship with the father. So what it does is that it relativizes his statements and any purported subordinationism that someone could um, apply to his divinity in John's gospel. So what I like about the essay is that it looks at the logic of John's flow and says, yeah, sure, Jesus does say some subordinationist sounding things. They apply to his mission in history and they're bracketed by his statements where he is clearly saying, I am one with God the Father, and I am as divine as the Father is. And that's why they try to kill him. So that's a great essay. I know, Mike, you're a big fan of it. Did you want to add to that? Oh, no, I think it's good. I mean, uh, John's Gospel is very much one of the battlegrounds in, in debates about Trinitarian theology, because on the one hand, you've got these statements that, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is sent by the Father, the Father is greater than I, uh, all those sorts of things. But the overwhelming uh, testimony, and this is, this is what Adesla gets into, is this big emphasis on uh, Jesus' sharing in the godness of the Father. You know, you find that in the prologue, the big emphasis on Jesus being equal with God, the Father and I are one, and then particularly the, the perichoretic elements, that of mutual indwelling, 
the Father is in me and I am in the Father. When you take all that together, this is a very, very strong sense of being a divine being. Uh, I'm not, not kind of like divine, like in inverted commas, or like, you know, mostly divine. This is like sharing in that which makes the Father divine and having a strong ontological link. And Adesola prosecutes that with great um, vigor and uh, verb, and I think it's, it's quite compelling in the end. Another um, essay that I think is great is this um, essay, Beholding the Beholder, Precision and Mystery in Gregory of Nyssa's <laughs> Adoblabium by a certain Amy, Amy Brown Hughes. Do you want to tell us about that? <laughs> sure. Um, so I look at a two pieces from Gregory of Nyssa. Um, one is his Adoblabium or Two Oblabius. There's really no short it's a very complicated title, but it's a very common short piece that is read in a lot of theological classrooms and such on the Trinity, where he's arguing that um, how God is one and three. And then this other really short work that is way less known, um, also has a very complicated <laughs> uh, English version. So we just sort of go with the Latin, Tunket Ipse, um, which is... Gregory of Nyssa working through all the language of of submission or subordination, but uh, submission in scripture and, and asking, so what is happening here? So Jesus is, as we've kind of made a couple of points already in this podcast, he does submit. So what Gregory is doing is looking through this and thinking about, well, what does it mean for Jesus to submit? Um, and what he ends up focusing on is that the incarnation is key, that it's specific to his incarnation that um, that he submits. And not only that, the move that Gregory makes that is so beautiful, in my opinion, is that he assumes that in because we are in Christ, that when we participate in Christ, we participate in that sort of submission to God. So Christ is doing this on our behalf as all of us. And so uh, I think those two pieces together just really give a, a lovely sort of full articulation of Trinitarian theology and also really kind of engages in um, this, this particular question um, that Gregory's asking. I thought I thought that essay was really helpful because one of the strongest claims that's been made in this debate is by Bruce Ware, who says that um, related to the son's eternal subordination to the father is the fact that the father has a degree of glory that the son does not have. Right. So that is stating very, very clearly that the father and the son have different degrees of glory. Um, which pushes against uh, the history of orthodoxy. And I think your essay addresses it um, just brilliantly, Amy. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I should say, Scott, you've got some good pieces in here too. You've got your own sort of critical engagement with um, Bruce Ware, which you've um, you know, thoughtfully previewed. But you also give a big warning about the type of theological cultures that we allow to grow. Like if you have a theological culture in your church, denomination, seminary, where maybe not Arianism, but a kind of semi-Arianism semi um, is, is kind of permitted and tolerated, then you're only a short shift from going to the next generation becoming full Monty Arianism. And you, you give an example of that looking at the Anglican tradition, how that kind of uh, happened. Do you want to say something about that, Scott? 
how it's easy to go from it's easy to go from orthodoxy uh, and then moving next next thing you know you people are kind of like mocking and critiquing the creed of Nicaea and Nicene Creed and stuff yeah so in the 1700s there was a group of theologians around Isaac Newton and mates and they um, were uh, semi-Aryans um, or convinced Aryans and basically people didn't intervene in their theology uh, very strongly and it caught on in the next generation you've got Aryans and the generation after that you've got Deists where Jesus is just an example meek and mild for every child and then after that you've just got full-blown um, Deism and not much that's particularly Christian left at all so these beliefs left unchecked actually poisoned Anglicanism and early Presbyterianism for three generations had devastating effects on the church, and that's very well documented. So one of the reasons why you can't leave Bruce Ware's theology unchecked is that though Bruce Ware may be a Christian that somehow can hold that the Father and Son have a different degree of glory and he is not a committed polytheist, um, the fact is he has people that follow his views very strongly and we don't want the next generations to be poisoned by these ideas because that will damage the church. So the final essay is a very strong warning looking back at recent history um, and seeing the effect that these beliefs have on the church. And if we go even further back than that, we can see the councils that happened after Nicaea where the Semi-Arians um, tried to propose these ideas where the Father has a greater glory than the Son. And back then they caused terrible damage as well. So it's just simply you can't leave unchecked, Amy. So it sounds like, um, I'll ask this just to kind of put a bow on it. So where are we in this theological conflict at this point? Has there been sort of a new agreement, a new conflict, a ceasefire, a detente, a, theolog a theologian hug fest? You know, <laughs> how, how, how are we doing here? Well, I, I think um, if I could just go back to one more essay in the book, Jeff Fisher has a very important um, essay on Protestant scholastics on the Trinity in persons. And what he's trying to show is that um, between the 1550s and the 1680s, a lot of key theologians um, of whom we are heirs today had a number of very careful disclaimers um, and rules for the interpretation of Scripture, um, and which parallel those that were around in Nicaea. And I think that what, what's happened recently is that in evangelical circles, we've all realized that careful distinctions need to be made. So we need to distinguish the relations between the persons of the Trinity in salvation history from eternal uh, their eternal relations. We need to um, attend very carefully to the logic and the flow of Scripture. We need to hold on to the differentiation of persons via relations of generation, spiration, and opposed relations. So what Jeff does is he shows how in the Protestant tradition there are all these very careful qualifiers that sort of function as the qualifiers in Nicaea, and that to be healthy Protestants we need to, to retain um, and sometimes rediscover these. And my feel, and uh, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that basically there's been a move towards orthodoxy with people that weren't accepting 
uh, the begottenness of the Son and eternal generation, accepting that. There's been an understanding that we need to differentiate um, relations in, in the economy of salvation from eternity and so forth. And as these hermeneutical rules, um, which reflect realities, by the way, they're not just rules for the sake of it, as we accept these theological realities, I think that there's a move back towards um, healthy orthodoxy. That's my take, but I'm really interested to see what you guys would say too. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I think under the barrage of criticism, the EFS is largely folded like a car table. Uh, I don't think I don't see too many people now willing to stick their head above the parapet and say, on second thoughts, I think it was a good idea. I think for the moment, it is it is it is done. Uh, maybe in ten and twenty years, someone will try revive this. Um, yeah, who knows? But at, at the moment, I think it's done, and I think there is more of an interest in classical Trinitarian theology and resourcing that for, for today. I would say, though, um, that, you know, this sort of basic, because, I mean, we just talked about how this theology is really kind of the cart before the horse, right, about gender. Um, so that particular question no, it's almost right. Like, so, okay, we're not semi-Aryans and we're not going to do eternal functional subordinationism, but using like the whole subordination of women situation, like there's still a lot of, obviously that's still a huge piece. And so there's sort of a question for me. And, you know, you mentioned some of the other theologians that were involved here, right. That are still kind of really involved in um, dealing with the aftermath uh, especially on the gender question, um, where it's um, it's kind of released some <laughs> some continued bad feelings and that kind of thing that people are having to navigate. So it's interesting that the uh, theological debate often has um, sort of pastoral implications um, that come after the fact and kind of create these these situations where people have to navigate difficult conversations and, and such, um, especially around gender. I think if we could use a sporting analogy, I think what happened was in the 70s and 80s, you had like a, a hard blitz coming at the question of gender. And so you had everybody blitzing, the middle linebackers, the safeties, cornerbacks, everybody was just going for it. What's happened recently is that with a recovery of a healthy Nicene orthodoxy, it's like you've thickened up the offensive line. And so you're, you're protecting the quarterback of orthodoxy and the running back of kind of healthy, uh, constructive theology um, from getting smashed. But the thing is, they're still blitzing. They're recognizing that you can't get at these gender questions through the old um, tactics, like you know, doubling up on the rookie right guard or whatever. So they're changing um, tactics. And the question of gender is very, very live. And so now it's moved from a full-on blitz to, like, kind of what the Steelers use with, like, it looks like they're blitzing, but they're going to fall back and, and they're going to intercept you. So I think you need to be very um, Belichick-like as a theologian, recognize the plays and the tendencies and to notice that theological debates move and shift. So I think one, one way at getting at the gender question through Trinitarian arguments is done. But I think now um, there's a, a new 
uh, move that's being made, uh, trying to return to New Testament texts, but also new arguments such as pointing out the consequences of a more egalitarian approach to um, human relationships and so forth. So you just need to be really careful and watch how things are evolving. Yeah. I'm alarmed that Scott's um, free use say, of American football analogies. That was analogies. very contextual of you. I mean, I un- <laughs> like, yeah, like I understand what those individual words mean, but not in the sentences <laughs> that you use them. <laughs> I know the words line. I know the words backer. I know the, I know the word blitz. <laughs> But when you use them in those sentences, it didn't make any sense to me. Uh, I, I would say, I would say, if anything, if anything, uh, hopefully the whatever gender discussions there are, they can be put in a different seminar room and not collapsed into trinitarian discussions. And most importantly, don't don't use the Trinity to get your view of hierarchy, whether complementarian or, or egalitarian or political or denominational. Don't get your view of hierarchy. Uh, validated in the Trinity, because you end up just projecting, you just project your ideal community, and, and social Trinitarians do this as well, you know, uh, you just, just end up pro- projecting your ideal community into the Trinity. And no matter how ideal it is, it's not the, tr- it's not the Trinity. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you know, whether, you know, that's like Zazilius who wants to turn God into a kind of, you know, a um, Byzantine patriarchate, or, you know, whether it's a kind of, um, you know, low church kind of egalitarian things where there's no clergy laity distinction. Everyone wants to project their ideal model of relationships, church, community into the Trinity because if the, because that way we get to be the image of the Trinity. We are the Imago Trinitatis. And as far as I can tell, this always ends badly. That's a good word right there. So let's switch gears completely and do our speed round. You ready? So quick answers off the cuff. Scott, you are first. Are you a morning or a night person? I am a night person. I'm such a yeah. night person that I'm actually a very early morning person up to 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Mike, if you were an animal, what would you be and why? I would be a jaguar because I could intram- introduce myself as Michael the jaguar. <laughs> Scott, what is the most significant book, notice I didn't say your favorite, the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? Torrance's Space, Time, and Incarnation. Mike, same question to you. Uh, For me, it would be Jesus and the Victory of God by N.T. Wright. Scott, tea or coffee? Coffee, please. Mike, what movie do you think is... Tea, tea, no coffee. (laughs) I hate coffee. No one Just couldn't handle that, it. No Just one told me it. that coffee was going to be mentioned on this podcast. I have an explicit non-coffee line in our disclosure agreement. I was told there would be no coffee on this program. <laughs> so, Mike, what movie do you think is super-duper theological and why? Oh, The Matrix. Uh, it's got messianic themes. It's got Plato's cave. Actually, I was just discussing with Scott before this podcast how it's a great summary of Gnostic theology, where like the uh, the architect and the oracle are kind of like the um, uh, monogenies and the and the and the and the demiurge who kind of you know make the world. It's it's filled with so many religious and philosophical themes. So definitely the the Matrix, well the Matrix trilogy, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Scott, what is the most recent work of fiction you read that you just couldn't put down? 
Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. Classic. Yeah. Yeah, I've always felt guilty as an evangelical that I've never fully appreciated C.S. Lewis <laughs> as others have. So I'm a bit late coming to the party. Um, but that that was absolutely uh, wonderful. Mike, which Disney princess are you? Oh, that would have to be the redhead Ariel. <laughs> I can see that. Scott, same question to you. Which Disney princess are you? Uh Probably, um... And why is the answer Jasmine? <laughs> you know, I, I love chilling out at the beach, so I'd probably be under the sea with all the crew and, and uh, hanging out there. Two you know, aerials? I, I, got dibs, I got dibs on Ariel. Pick your own Disney princess. <laughs> I'll choose for you. You're, you're Jasmine. You're Jasmine. Well, can I go with, a, with another redhead, the, um, the princess from Brave? Oh, there you go. She's a bit of a legend. Okay. So, Mike, best band or musical artist ever? The first one that pops into your mind. In Excess. Nice. In Excess. <laughs> classic. Wow. Literally, I've only been to one music concert in my life, and it was In Excess in 1988. <laughs> wow. That is the only concert I've ever been to. <laughs> so, major props to the live, live musical experience. Uh, Scott, if you got a day to hang out with a the any theologian, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, well, I mean, it would be St. Augustine. I, I really feel um, a bond with him. I think I understand a lot of where he was coming from. I value lots of things he values, like friendship, stories, um, and I would just love to get to know him and, and make sure that my take on him is, is accurate. I, I would just love to, to sit on the North African coast, feel that warm breeze and, yes, drink coffee with him and just, just chill for three or four hours and, and just see, see what he's like. It, it will be just lovely. I'm also fascinated to meet his mum, um, yes. you know, to see what that son-mother relationship really was like. Um, and to hear Monica in her own words will be just great. Mm -hmm. I agree with you on that one. Mike, same question to you. Um, I would like to hang out with a uh, little, um, well, not very well-known Byzantine monk called um, Peter the Cantankerous. Um, uh, apparently he was well-known for complaining about the poor quality of food in Byzantine monasteries. Uh, no, actually, I just made that up. There is no Peter the Cantankerous. Uh, no, for me, it would it would probably be uh, probably Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the, 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 the chap I'd like to hang out. Um, you know, a bishop who's got good biblical theology or kind of almost invented biblical theology and, you know, was also a, a serious pastor to the, the church is under very adverse circumstances. So Irenaeus for my money with a very, very... I'd prefer some French wine rather than any coffee. All right. Scott, your sandwich falls on the floor. No one is looking. Do you eat it? It depends what it is and how long it's been. But yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> an so. open, let's say, you know, just for, you know, an open-faced egg salad sandwich. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe not. If it's a mess, if it's an absolute <laughs> mess and it's going to come up with more gray dust than egg, don't worry about it. Um, but, you know, most things, I I'm known to be an eater. Um, so most things, if they drop, I'm competing with the dog. And so I'll rush and, uh, and sort of own that ball and, and eat that sandwich. Scott is very infamous for cans of creamed rice. 
He could be seen walking around college eating cans of creamed rice. In fact, people took people took pity on him. <laughs> they started to give him like other food because uh, he'd just be seen like, "What do you got for lunch?" Oh, all I could find is a can of creamed rice. It's like, well, give this boy some salad or something. He needs some vegetables. But it, it will be kind of two. Off. It will be two or three cans of creamed rice. I just love that stuff. I mean, if you make creamy rice with cream and sugar, that's, that's a winner. And, and vanilla? I mean, come on. So, Mike, you have your own late-night talk show. Who would you invite as your first guest? That would be Conan O'Brien, because I would want to prove to the world that I'm a funnier redhead than him. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Maybe. Maybe, actually. It's got to be close. It's got to be close. And I, I know that we're, the responses we're going to get to this podcast are going to be about that particular question. <laughs> there's so much evidence that he's funny. There's, there's what people, have, people say, so what's Michael Bird like? And they say, like, oh, it's like a cross between Jason Bourne and Conan O'Brien. Jason Bourne? Yeah, I guess from your history, yeah. And yeah, pe- pe- people, gonna... people say, like, you know, look at me, like, you were a paratrooper you know, and military <laughs> intelligence operator. Like, like you... Yeah, yeah, me. Because you, you look more like Austin Powers than than kind of John Wick. I'm getting more of an Austin Powers vibe than a John Wick vibe. So I just don't really picture this very well. I say, no, I really well. That's what I really did. Seek out and close with the enemy. Kill or capture him. Season hold ground. Repel attack by day or night, regardless of season, weather or terrain. That was my business. And you should see him now as the academic dean. I mean, he deploys all those tactics. But I'll tell you what, when we're at conferences, that's the number one question I get is what is it like to work with Mike Bird? And, and what I say after explaining how hilarious he is, I say you should hear him pray because this guy is a genuine Christian. Like, honestly, hearing Mike pray is moving. It's deep. It's just wonderful. So oh, yeah. That's lovely. One more question for both of you. What is one idea in theology that you think needs to die and EFS is not on the table? Okay, Scott, I'm going to say this one, and this is, this is, this is going to earn me many, many, friend, many, many enemies. An- analytic theology. Mm. Analytic theology. It's like, well, I mean, just... Look, I, like, I don't mind if, like, a few kind of people, but who does... I mean, who reads the parables with analytic theology? I mean, seriously, it's... it's it's Like, I've, I've always said, it's kind of like A.J. Ayer and B.B. Warfield made a baby. Scott is hanging his head, y'all. No, no, can't, no, again, can't see this I, right now. It's got certain uses. I, I guess maybe not go away, but I just would... I wish all the kind of excitement and fuss over it would go away. Um, like, uh, like it, I'll, I'll admit it has certain values for certain things, but I just do not understand all the excitement, how this is kind of like, yeah, this is really cool, and all the cool kids are doing this, and um, I, just, I, just don't, I just don't get it. I mean, I, I just don't think it's the future of, of theology. All right, Scott, you're up. Now, he's thinking of how we can retaliate now. He says, <laughs> yeah, well, well, I hope N.T. Wright goes away. Yeah, take that, Mike. <laughs> Um, I think uh, one idea that's unhelpful at the moment, and it's related to what Mike said, is that um, we don't have much to appreciate from uh, 20th century um, theology. Like, there's a big snobbishness 
against uh, what was offered by really helpful theologians from the 20th century. And um, I think that sort of chronological snobbery isn't very helpful. And I don't want to be stuck in the past, but I think that there's been some really, really helpful works done, for example, by T.F. Torrance, and that it's a real mistake um, to leave those sorts of theologians behind. Um, so I, I'd like to see us um, more thoughtfully engaging with 20th century theologians than, than what I see recently. I just want people to know that when I was dissing analytic theology, Amy was nodding. Oh. <laughs> I, just, I just want the world to know that. You ratted me out. With these Trinitarian debates, it was Tommy McCall, influenced by analytic theology, that did bring quite a bit of clarity, together with Keith Yandel, to what is being said and what's entailed by the claim that the Son has a lesser divinity than the Father. So in some, some particular debates, that, that concern for, for clarity, proper definition, is very helpful. Um, so I just wanted to, to say that. Uh, let, let, me, let me make the consolation point that if we want to return to our football analogy, I'm very, I'm very happy to have analytic theology on the roster as long as it is special teams rather than the quarterback. Okay, yeah, yeah. So we can. Bring oh, hey, it. we got we got a bit of a we got a bit of a, a seeming agreement here. Yeah, so, I, so I don't I'm, mind I don't mind bringing out the um, special teams like yeah you, know, you bring out the kicker for certain things. So I don't mind bringing out the analytic theologians for a certain particular task. Like what, what admittedly what 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 Tom McCall did I thought actually was quite good. But I, I just don't want to see people doing this for me to be the main way of doing theology because it will it will it will it will bore people. Because you end up looking at maths equations, like you know, incarnation is e over x to the power of y. I mean, I just can't do that. I can't do that in theology. All right, I got one more one more question. So I'm going to cut off our analytic uh, theology debate, which could be a whole other podcast. Let's leave the theological classroom and and spend a little time kind of on the congregational level. So subordinating Christ and or the Holy Spirit is bad, yeah. But it's surprisingly easy to do accidentally while preaching to any audience um, on Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. And um, I've heard it a lot from the pulpit. Let's put it that way. And, and it's sort of a, it seems to be an in the moment thing when we look at the congregation or the youth group or the children in our care. I've done a lot of like children's ministry. And I got to tell you, y'all, like we need some theologians doing some kids curriculum. Anyway, uh, we, we do this and we pull an Arius or a semi-Arius. We get very concerned about how we, com that we communicate how Christ is close to us, but in so doing, we split the Trinity and slip into subordination. So how have y'all worked through this yourselves? And what advice do you have for those who preach Christ to any audience on how best to avoid this? Well, Mike's uh, fortunate enough to be married to um, someone who's employed as a kid's uh, worker in our church. And they do a great job. And as I think about the kind of work um, that uh, Mike's wife and uh, the other uh, children's worker do, is that they stick to um, biblical stories and don't run away with the theme too much. So if they're sticking to a biblical story about Jesus and it's talking about his power um, as well as his compassion, they'll mention both. 
And so rather than having a thematic story on nice Jesus, the compassionate, merciful one, they'll couch it in the context of his power. That, that partly is because we're an Anglican church that's evangelical and um, likes to work through um, whole passages of the Bible um, at the time. So I think that our own practice um, of expository preaching bleeds into our kids' ministry and that, that helps us. So we have sort of a scriptural frame for the kids' talks, um, which means that they're not reductionistic. So avoiding reductionism, I think, would be a great way forward and avoiding it by couching um, particular ideas within the larger um, text is, is its companion. Yeah, I would say there's there's nothing more terrifying than asking um, first year seminary students how to explain the Trinity, or when you go into a church and preach on things, and someone says, "Really? I always thought the Holy Spirit was kind of like the Force from Star Wars." Um, you know, it's actually a divine person. It's a little bit disturbing. Um, when I when I start talking about the Trinity with students, the first thing I ask them, I say, "If believing in the Trinity were a crime, what evidence would there be to convict you?" Uh, if, if, you, if you could be convicted for being Trinitarian, what would the evidence be? And in the vast majority of cases, it's something that they uh, have in their doctrinal statement, but it doesn't even figure in. I mean, in some churches, they may celebrate Trinity Sunday. But other than that, it, it, never, really, it never really figures in. So the, the first thing I get them is to tell them is make sure every Sunday is Trinity Sunday and make sure that you don't end up with a a kind of um, a God the Father as being, you know, the um, the kind of like the Morgan Freeman, you know, of of your of your of your deity, with Jesus as the kind of cool hippie brother, and with the Holy Spirit as the like, you know, the force from Star Wars or something, and to actually think through, you know, whether my sermon, whether the the praying, the worship leading, the songs you pick to sing. Um, too much evangelical culture is very much Jesus monist. It's kind of like, you know, um, Jesus, you're terrific for you. I'd swim the Pacific. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's too much like that. Uh, we, when we need to recover a full Monty, uh, a fully orb Trinitarian view of uh, of how that works into into preaching, praying, uh, singing, and genuine and genuine uh, Christian ministry. So it should not just be a little footnote you have. It should be like one of the main things. Well, I think we don't realize, too, how much we do preach on the Trinity, like almost accidentally, especially in evangelical context around the discussions of atonement, right? Where we're talking about what happened with Jesus on the cross. There's the whole like, you know, um, you know, father abandonment conversation, all that sort of stuff. And it's really easy because we want Christ, we want to tell people what happened with Christ. It, like we make, we do all sorts of different things to the father to make this separation within the Trinity happen. Um, so I, I think that there are specific avenues where we need to just be aware of particular sort of maybe traditional things that um, because of a very particular emphasis in evangelicalism on not just, I mean, on one particular theory of or model of atonement, um, even though not necessarily to the expense of others, but often, yes, um, that that can sometimes when we have kind of a bloated section um, that is a more narrow perspective on a particular theological idea that can lead to some difficulties in other ways. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> 
Maybe we should get like some red hats and print on it, and make the Trinity great again. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, you could maybe, maybe Amy, you could walk around Boston wearing that hat. That would oh, be really no. <laughs> do some selfies. Can you imagine? Go, like every everywhere, like red hats now. Like, like I, I, nobody can I, wear a red hat. <laughs> okay, I'll show you one thing I've got. I'll show you one thing I've got, oh, Amy. Oh no! <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm very afraid. Oh no, what is this? Make... <laughs> it's a red hat that says, make Anglicanism great again. Great again. <laughs> I have I'm, some it's for It's interesting sale. to me, I'm like, are we talking about like the 1800s? Are we talking like, so I'm, I'm sort of curious about what nostalgia we're going for. There's with... official Mike Bird <laughs> merch uh, that, is, that is on sale and uh, he's trying to make a profit off it too, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. For $16.99 American, I will sell, send you your Make Anglicanism Great Again hat so you too can fit in into Donald Trump's America. Oh, no. Which, which I believe will only be lasting, hopefully, for another two weeks. Oh, one can hope. All sorry, right, I, should, sorry I, should have got, I shouldn't have got political. I shouldn't have got political. Can I add the importance of um, the creed in our... Yes. Um, Please do, Weekly Scott. liturgies. Um, <laughs> I know that, that some churches um, uh, sort of aren't into creeds and stuff, but uh, when I was a pastor in the States, I was a pastor at a, a Bible church in Illinois, um, and they knew I was Anglican and so forth. When I arrived, I introduced the Lord's Prayer one week, the creed the next week. And it was a nice rhythm. It didn't feel like the same thing all the time. Um, and I think it was helpful. Uh, in the life of the congregation. And it became part of the DNA um, of the church. And as families joined us, they thought that was absolutely normal. Um, and I think it's very helpful in terms of providing the the um, boundaries for orthodoxy and reminding people of how um, highly uh, we value the Son and the Spirit together with the Father. It's a Christian distinctive, and I think it belongs in, in Christian worship. So I'd, I'd like to see us including that in the rhythm of our churches. Well, and I, you know, I've said on this podcast before, I grew up Pentecostal and I didn't say a creed until well after college. <laughs> I mean, I studied them in college, right? But, um, which is kind of funny that now I study them, right? <laughs> um, and, and I haven't left that Pentecostal heritage behind, but that is a, a, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I just talked with, um, uh, Justo Gonzalez, um, about his book on the Lord's prayer. Um, yeah, that just released. And one of the things we talked about was with the Lord's prayer, you brought that up, Scott, that sort of the sense that it, you say it all the time, there's this sort of fear that it becomes rote, the fear that it becomes something that is, um, that loses meaning because it's not spontaneous or it doesn't feel like the kind of prayer that, you know, that, that's, that comes from the Holy spirit from that particular moment in that particular context. But, um, I think through that conversation um, and with the creed, I think there's a sense just like reading scripture over and over again, right? We wouldn't say that about that. Oh, I read Philippians too. No, I'm done. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> move on. I mean, no, like I mean, that's one of the pieces of of memorizing scripture, right? Like where we chew on it, we consume it. It becomes part of who we are, and and then it becomes you know fuel for us. And I think that 
while, you know, the creeds aren't scripture, obviously, but they are a really helpful framework for us um, to help us not to end up in these ditches on our, the sides of interpretation on very important theological things like the Trinity. And also, it, it's important to remember, so Mike and I go to a charismatic Anglican church. You know, we have healing services, um, words of prophecy, words of wisdom, the whole thing tongues um, and interpretation and and we also have creeds and the lord's prayer like you can have the whole package um, there are riches to be had there um, so i i would urge us all to draw on the great depths um, from our tradition and also look to the living god look look what god is doing in our midst by his spirit um, he is doing great things and part of that is is resourcing us with everything that we have um, to make us um, stand in this age and proclaim the gospel in a healthy way that relates to healing, becoming full um, old persons, um, becoming Christ-like, and as a church, doing good in the world and becoming salt um, and light. I think there's there's so much there, and um, I would just urge us all to, to, to be pastors and congregational members with everything we have. Well, I feel like we could put the doxology after that and (laughs) so i think i'll do my own uh podcast version it was a delight to talk with you both i really enjoyed our conversation well thank you for having us um thank you for your essay in our book it was a great contribution the students have really appreciated it and thank you for having us on today yes thank you very much it's been a tremendous amy and thank you for your uh, um, invitation and involvement So this is your host, Amy Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Mike Bird, academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley Theological College, and Scott Harrower, lecturer in theology and church history also at Ridley. Mike and Scott have contributed to and edited Trinity Without Hierarchy, Reclaiming Nicene Orthodoxy in Evangelical Theology, published by Craigle Academic in 2019. You can find a link to this book on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.